history, according to Luke 14, part 2, spoken by Pastor Peter Hahn. I got a lot to share with you today in about 28 minutes and 53 seconds. And so uh, we're going to try to get through this. But, you know, I like to reminisce a lot. And when I first met my wife in college, it was literally love at first sight. Not for me, but for her. Right? You got to believe me on that. She was staring at me in such a, I mean, it was, I felt like she was objectifying me in the cafeteria. I felt really uncomfortable. And I remember kind of talking to her about that. And she said, it was because you were so tall. Like, I'd never seen such a tall Korean. And I just said, no, it was a different kind of stare. It wasn't that kind of a stare. <laughs> but, you know, as, 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 uh, when I first met her, I just saw her as a friend. Nothing more. And, and as the months continued, we just kind of got to know each other. But again, I just saw her as a friend. But then there was this one evening on a Sunday, she'd go home on the weekends to tend to her parents' business. And she'd come back. And I was waiting in line to get to the cafeteria. And the parking lot in which she usually parks at, it, she had to go through that cafeteria building in order to get to her dorm. And I was just waiting in line, just minding my business. And she just walks through. And as she's walking through, everything was in slow motion. Right? She just got a haircut. She walks in, it's kind of windy, so she twirls her head like that. Her hair is moving so slowly. And then my eyes, I just look at her, and it's as if I'm looking at her for the very first time. And it was at that moment, seriously, I fell in love with her. I said, I have got to get to know this girl more, and i got to try to get her to like me. And so I did the best I could. I macked on her for about a month, month and a half. And then on December 16th of 1992, we finally confessed our feelings for each other. And she liked me. And when she says she likes me and she wants to date me, I was so happy because it's the first girlfriend I ever had. And I dreamed about having a girlfriend since I was in like eighth grade. And um, so I was so excited about it. It was euphoric, thought about her all the time, wanted to spend every moment with her. Didn't like it when she had to go to class and we didn't see each other. Didn't like it when she had to go to her parents' business for the weekend and I didn't see her. I just kept thinking about her. It was like this devotion that I had for our love. And I just wanted to be with her all the time. We, Dated for about six and a half, seven years. It wasn't all great, I'll be honest, but it was good enough for me to want to marry her. And so we got married on, we got married about six and a half and seven years of dating. And once we got married, that euphoric feeling just kind of went away. And I had to ask myself, oh no, what's going on here? And what I had to learn over time was that I had to learn to love her with a different kind of devotion. And originally, it really was this a devotion of me just receiving love from her and just feeling really good about it. But as I got married, I realized that I needed to devote my love to her by working on myself, working on my issues, learning to grow up and be a real man. Because when she married me, she didn't marry a man. She married a boy, a little boy. And I had to grow up and really work hard. And it was a devotion that I would never have signed up for because it required me to change. And it's so hard to change. It really is, especially when you're set in your ways and you kind of grow up with certain issues. And you always like to look at the other person and say, this is how you should change. And when I had to realize that it was me that really had to change, I didn't like that. But I had a question to ask myself, am I going to stay devoted to this marriage? And if I am, I have to really work hard at it, hard, doing things that I don't want to do, but I have to be willing to engage at that level so that I can work in my relationship with her and that we can love each other in a real way. And I'm happy to say that after being married to her, after 18 years, I'm finally a man. 
And I'm proud to say that, but I got ways to go still. And she does too. We both have to grow together and work on our relationship. It's not an option if you say you love somebody. Really, it's not, married couples. You working on you, it's not an option. You remember the time you gave your life to Jesus? Remember the time you fell in love with God? Wasn't it euphoric? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I first became a Christian, I fell in love with Jesus. I said, I'll do anything, God. Whatever you want me to do, I'm there. I'll do it. I was like this radical Christian. And I want to, I want to pray. I want to sing all the time. I want to go to church. I want to be a pastor or be a missionary. I thought, like, I'll do anything for you, God. At that moment, I became a Christian when, in 1989 when I was a sophomore in high school. But then what happens after time, after that feeling of intensity, that euphoric feeling just kind of goes away? What happens over time? You kind of love Jesus in theory, don't you? And not necessarily in practice anymore. And in reality, you're not able to engage with God, maybe like the way you used to, because somehow you have this utopian idea of what it means to follow God. And what I love about what Jesus is going to do here today is that he's going to teach you what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because I think a lot of you, you've signed up for the benefits package. You believe that being a Christian is supposed to just be great. It's supposed to make you feel good all the time, that you can go to God and open pray, say, God, I need you to help me with this, and God will bless you with it. I mean, you feel like this is like the best benefits package that's out there. And maybe if I can be a little honest, the majority of you said yes to Jesus because you don't want to go to hell when you die. You like to go to heaven. And again, you see God, not necessarily as this God who wants to enter into a deep relationship with you, but yet you see him as such, as somebody who should just bless you and not send you to hell when you pass away. Again, you see him as sort of a benefits package. And then if you think about this word discipleship, and this is what Jesus is going to teach us today, what discipleship is really about, we sort of see discipleship as an option, meaning we feel like there are, some, there are Christians and then there are disciples. And Jesus doesn't give us that distinction. He says, if you're a Christian, you're a disciple. There is no option. We have to be willing to engage with God at that level. And so can I just ask you a real just honest question today? Are you a disciple today? Because if you say no to that, then you're certainly not a Christian. I told you a couple Sundays ago, when we read the teachings of Jesus, he's not playing. And this passage is another passage, another reminder of what Jesus is calling the church to be aware of. What Mama Zuma said. We always have to remember Jesus. And he's reminding us what it means to follow him because some of you have forgotten what it means to follow him. And I get that because we do that all the time. And some of us, because we're not in this land of euphoria with God, you're struggling. Thinking that perhaps maybe that's not following God in a righteous way. I think you're never more faithful to God when you experience Gethsemane in your life. That that's normal. It's a part of life. And so Jesus is going to teach us today how we can engage with him in a way where discipleship is no longer an option, but it's a normal part of our daily life in believing in Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Here's what it says. 
Large crowds are traveling with Jesus and turning to them. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build it and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. I love that last part. Again, Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. These are not for people who don't care. These are for people who actually do. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. God, so we come to you, and Lord, you spoke a real hard teaching thousands of years ago that I think a lot of us here in America really struggle to walk. And so God, help us to make sense of this text for our lives today in our context. I pray that you would open our eyes and God, that we'd fall in love with the scriptures this morning because what you have to teach us, what you taught 2,000 years ago can still transform our life today. May we enter into discipleship with you, God. May our lives never be the same because we've decided to stay devoted and committed to the God who loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and die for us on the cross. And so I pray, God, that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, God, I pray that it would indeed be pleasing to you. In your name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. All right, so what is a disciple? What's a disciple? For many of you, you see it as like this covert group, like a Navy SEAL. Special ops group for God, right? It's a select group of people that God chooses, like the 12 apostles, that you believe those are like what disciples are. Uh, maybe it is, but really that's really not what a disciple is. You see, a disciple is someone who identifies with Jesus' mission and makes it their greatest priority. That's a disciple. A disciple is someone who identifies with Jesus' mission and makes it its greatest priority. That is who a disciple is. It's somebody who identifies with the very mission of Jesus Christ and you make it your greatest priority in your life. Now, I know that's asking a lot, but you got to stick with me on this and realize why that if we can orient our life that way or reorient our life that way, the blessings come. And listen, I am not saying that you don't experience benefits and blessings if you be a disciple. I do. I think the blessings are far greater than if you choose not to, but they're not the reasons why we should pursue God. They're just these natural byproducts that happen as we are devoted and we identify with the mission of Jesus and we make it our greatest priority. And so then the question is, what is Jesus' mission? Well, you know this now because you're Lucan scholars. Several months ago, we looked at Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Let me remind you what the mission of Jesus is. 
Here it is, Luke 4, chapter, uh, 4, chapter 8, uh, verses 18 and 19. It says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. These are the words of Jesus. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to who? To the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor or the year of jubilee. That's really what that means there. And so what is the very mission of Jesus? Is to serve people who are lost, who don't know who Jesus is, particularly those who've been marginalized by the powers to be, who are considered to be the poor and the oppressed. The mission of Jesus is to simply go to people whom the world has forgotten about. And it's to love on them. And to pray and hope that they too would be able to engage with the God who's created them the way you are able to engage with the God who's created you. Amen? That's the mission that God wants you to identify with today. And that you would make it your greatest priority. That if you do that, oh boy, you need to be a better husband. You know why? Because if your marriage is jacked up, you can't live out that mission. Impossible. Impossible. So the benefits are just amazing because you make Jesus your greatest priority and you realize because he's my greatest priority, I got to work on my own issues. I got to grow because if I don't, then I'm going to get desensitized to wanting to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And I'm not going to meet God as a result of it. God has given you and me the responsibility. I'm going to go deep into this next Sunday. But he's given us the responsibility to proclaim to people that the year, their year of the Lord's favor is upon them. What a message that we can proclaim to people who are living life today where they do not experience the year of the Lord's favor in their life. That's an amazing truth that we can proclaim to people. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we talk about it in our vision. Shirley mentioned it. It's about this idea of transformation. Transformation means that God is going to transform you in your relationship with him. God's going to transform you in your relationship with other people, especially those relationships that, may, that might be broken and strained. And then as he does that, you know what begins to happen? You begin to believe that God could use you to transform the world. You see, that's the mission that God's called you to. And he wants you to identify with it and he wants you to make it your very greatest priority in your life. You see, that was not the greatest priority in a typical Jewish person's life. And that's why Jesus had to really use some really strong language in verse 26. Look at verse 26. He says this. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. That's tough language. You see, a person's, a Jewish person's identity and where they found their identity was always with their families. It was their greatest priority. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's saying that you and I are to hate them. Now, it's not an effective quality here. Really, really what he's trying to get at is that you and I have to get to the place where we are willing to disavow our ancestral allegiance and that we would that we would embrace the very identity in which God wants to give us, that we are his children, and that we now are to identify with him, his mission, and make it our greatest priority. Basically what he's saying is this. Jesus says that your priority over me has to be so much greater that when you compare it to the next important thing in your life, it needs to look like hate. 
That's what he's saying. For some of us, our families are bigger than God. It is, and I get it. Especially if you grew up in a minority context and when you came to this country, it was just your family and you only got where you got today because of your family. And I get how your family is so important. But Jesus is saying, your love for me has to be so much greater than your family that it needs to look like hate. Your love for success maybe, because that's what you want, the American dream, is so important today. But Jesus says that your love for God has to be so much greater that when you compare it to your love for success, it's got to look like hate. Parents, let me go a little deeper here. It's harder. Jesus is saying your love for your children is good and it's great. But he says, but if you compare it to my love, the love that you should have for me, it needs to look like hate. Jesus ain't playing. He's saying that's what a disciple is. A disciple is somebody who's willing to give up their primary allegiances in their life and give it all to God and say, I follow after you. And then when you do that, God blesses you. The blessings come in that way. And we realize that God is not just this benefits package, that you don't just go to him because you get benefits out of him. And I get why people follow God because of that, but that's really a warped way of seeing it. You know, when I, when I fell in love with Jenny, uh, I fell in love with her in the beginning just because I saw that she was a great benefits package for me. That it just was great to have another woman love me back. It was great to tell my friends who didn't have girlfriends I got a girl now. Yeah, I got a girl. They said, can I see a picture? I was like, I don't got one, but I'll get one one day. And so they always said, this is an imaginary girlfriend because we never met her. But it still felt great to tell them, I have a girlfriend. I have a girlfriend. And I just loved being with her because it just made me happy, right? It made me happy. But I had to learn that to be in a relationship with someone, I have to eventually destroy my self-centeredness what I expect from her all the time. Like I had to give up the fact that perhaps maybe my wife will never, ever, ever, ever write a love letter to me, ever. I would love a love letter because I'm, I'm a mush. I mean, if somebody just wrote a letter about how much they love me, I mean, forget it, it's game over. I'm yours. We've been together for 25 years. Not one love letter. <laughs> Not one. Not one. I had to give up the reality. She probably wouldn't do that. And be okay with it. I had to probably give up the fact that my wife will probably not be as affectionate as I want her to be again. She's kind of like the man in the relationship, and I'm more of the one that wants the affection. I'm a lover, not a fighter. And uh, I had to give up that, but she's gotten better at it. I do because I said I need more of it. But... Uh, but you know, like they're just, I had to realize that if I really want to have a deep, profound love for her, I got to stop being so self-centered and ask myself, what can you do to bless me? I had to live with that realization. It's the same way with God, that you have to stop thinking of him as someone who's going to bless you. Rather, you should go to him and say, God, how can I be a blessing to you? See, that's a disciple. A disciple isn't just somebody saying, God, would you just bless me because I need you to bless me all the time. And God, what's going on here? How come you're not helping me here at work? What's going on? But it's really getting to the point where you can say, God, how can I be a blessing to you? What can I do for you? That's a love relationship because God's done everything for you already. You know that? Amen? He's given you his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you on the cross and resurrect from the dead. So the... The profound truth is simply that God has done it all for us. 
He's blessed us with the greatest blessing in life. And so we are to get to the place now in our lives as we receive the greatest blessing in life, which is Jesus Christ. Say, God, how can I be a blessing to you? How can I make your priorities my greatest priority? That's a disciple. Pastor Kevin talked about that last Sunday. It does. It doesn't happen unless you realize that a disciple's greatest task is to identify themselves with the mission of Jesus and make it their greatest priority. So discipleship then, at the end of the day, is making Jesus your greatest priority. So how do we do that? Because that's not easy. There's a lot of things that compete with, with us trying to, you know, with our priorities in our life. How do we make Jesus our greatest priority? Well, the first thing he says is this. you got to count the cost. That we make Jesus our greatest priority when we count the cost. Look what he says in verse 27. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You should memorize that, all right? 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. you got to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. You got to count the cost and say, what is it going to look like if I make Jesus' mission my greatest priority in life? It's a really important thing for you and I to ask that. Because discipleship at the end of the day, it requires a death within us. A death of ourselves and our own wishes and what we desire. Because no matter how hard you try not to, our faith is so much about what we want God to do on our terms. On our terms. And that's not what it's about. It's not about that. A disciple is somebody who makes Jesus their highest priority and they actually count the cost of what that's going to entail in their life. Have you ever counted the cost? Have you? Do you guys, um, I, I drove by yesterday because we were in Jersey City, uh, the Meadowlands. Do you guys know the Xanadu project? Oh, yeah. That indoor ski facility. It's supposed to be. Do you know how much money they spent on that? $2 billion. They lost $2 billion. They didn't do it. They didn't finish it. Now it's just going to be an indoor mall, they say. But that was a project where they didn't fully count the cost. Investors lost $2 billion. I mean, we can laugh and kind of ridicule them and be like, that's crazy. How could you be so stupid? Same way with Jesus. Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Because it'll look foolish for you to say that you follow him and yet you're not living like him. People will ridicule you. They will. They will ridicule you as they see your life in God. We got to be willing to count the cost. You got to ask yourself, is it really worth making Jesus my greatest priority? Because those people who are able to do that are the ones who are following God through the thick and thins of life. Simply meaning this, when you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you will suffer you will go through hardships. But man, it's so much better to suffer with a purpose than when you suffer without one. You and I are going to suffer no matter what in life. No matter what life throws at us. We will all go through a season of suffering. I say it is so much better when we suffer with a purpose because God's there to get us through it than when we suffer without a purpose. So the choice for you is this. Will you suffer with a purpose or will you not and just continue to live the life that you want to live on your terms and you just want God to sprinkle his blessings upon your agenda and your life? Have you counted the cost? You see, I had to count the cost. I caught the vision for Metro when I was in seminary. 
And I just said, what would it look like if we could be a church of transformation, but that transformation happens when we come together because our commonality is not our strengths, but it's our pain, our weaknesses. I said, man, I would love to be a part of a church like that because then my sister, who has a learning disability, could come and find a home here. I said, I would love for a church to be like that. And I had to realize that if, if we're going to be a church what brings us together is our pain and not our strengths. Because so much of the world and how you get together in social arenas is all about your strengths. Right? Even your ethnicity is a strength. Your profession is a strength. Right? And so I just said, what would that look like? And I had to realize that if we're going to do that as a church, I got to get up here and I got to pretty much share some of the junk that I've been through. And I need you to know, prior to me pastoring this church, very few people knew about my past. I've had, I have some friends that I grew up with in school that come to this church. And when I first started sharing, they said, I never knew, dude. You never shared that with me. I said, why would I want to share that with you? Why? I had to count the cost and say, do I share this or not? Because my parents are still alive. My sisters are still alive. Do I embarrass them? And, you know, some of your parents go to the same church my parents go to. Like what would happen if I share that stuff and then you tell your parents and then your parents tell a friend of theirs in church and then they start gossiping about it and then somehow it gets to my mom and dad's ears and they hear all of a sudden that my dad used to beat her up all the time. My dad was abusive in every way to his children. Like I had to count that cost. Because the last thing I want to do is hurt my parents because I love them. I really, do I do this or do I not? But I realized all I had to give you guys, honestly, I don't have anything. All I had to give you, seriously, to be your pastor is my pain. That's it. And to kind of take you through a journey of how God was able to redeem some of that stuff in my life. That's all I had. And so I still remember the very first time that I shared my stuff with, about my family. Oh, man. It felt like I got up here and I was physically naked and you saw me. And I felt violated. When I finished and I sat down... I just wanted to run into the parking lot and just get out of here. I didn't want to see any of your faces. Because I had such shame in that story. But I did count the cost. And 13 years later, I still share about stuff about family. But I share about my failures as a husband and as a father. And you know what? I think there's been a lot of benefits that reap in your lives as you hear that. Because you realize, hey, the senior pastor actually struggles like me. There's hope in this journey of faith with God. But I had to count the cost if I was going to do that or not. And as a result of that, you know what the beautiful thing about people who count the cost? You get the tower at the end. Because those who count the cost get the tower in the story. Those who don't, don't get it. So there is a benefit. There is a blessing that comes your way. But you got to count the cost. Are you counting the cost of following Jesus? Have you ever done that? Because for many of us, we haven't. And when the cost gets so big, we just walk away. And we don't want to engage in that cost. you got to count the cost. you got to count the cost. For some of you, that counting the cost actually means getting counseling. And maybe like somebody, some people have told you, you should get some counseling. It would be really good. And you take that so offensively. Like me? I don't need counseling. You get counseling. Dare you accuse me of being weird, having issues. But you continue to hurt the people you love the most all the time. And you're so lonely. Because really, you're unlovable. 
And so will you get some help? That's counting the cost. Say, you know what? I'm going to suck my pride, and I'm going to get some help, and I'm going to learn how to be a better lover. Because that stuff, you just cannot learn, especially if you've never received it growing up. You really need to get some help in that area. That's counting the cost, right? Maybe counting the cost is you maybe quitting your job because you're never home and you're working these hours. You never see your children and you're struggling with that. And you're only working because you need to pay your bills. You don't like the thing that you're doing and it's just, it's just drying you up. And maybe counting the cost is quitting that job, making a lot less money, living in a simpler fashion, and being happy because you have your wife, you have your kids, you have God. And that's so much better than you being rich. It's overrated to love money and serve money. Maybe counting the cost for some of you is you got to stop bowing down to your fears in your life. Because a lot of you, you allow your fears to dictate how you're going to live your life. And you're saying, you know what, I'm going to count the cost now and I'm going to conquer my fears once and for all. I'm no longer going to let my fears tell me what I need to do. But I'm actually going to tell my fears what it needs to do. Boy, that's a great place for those in this room who struggle with fear all the time. I, I'm a recovering fear addict. And it's just great when you can just overcome them. So have you counted the cost today? A good disciple counts the cost. The second thing we learn here is that Jesus becomes our greatest priority, which is what is the marker of a disciple, when we give up everything to God, all right? When we give up everything to God. Look at this next parable, verse 31. Or suppose a king is about to go out to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who don't give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. It goes without saying that in order to make Jesus your greatest priority, what, what's really required is that you're willing to give up everything for God. This parable, it teaches us that good disciples make those assessments in their life. All right? What is the goal of you giving up everything to God? What is the goal of this parable? What is it at the end of the day? It's peace with God. That's what it says here. It's to establish peace with the king. And so the goal, you cannot have peace with God if you're not willing to give God everything. Impossible. Because other things would be competing with you, right? And so again, like, you know, there's these other types of Christians that like to follow God, but based upon their terms. What you're basically doing is that if you believe in a Christianity where you like to live life your way, with your version of Christianity, basically what you're doing is you're taking a stand against them. That's what Jesus is saying here. You will be defeated at, that, at, at the end of the day. God's not going to bless you because of that. Right? That's kind of like saying, honestly, that you believe in Jesus, and yet you're still unwilling to forgive people who have deeply hurt, hurt you and wounded you. I get it. It's a process for sure. But so many of you in this room who say you're a follower of Jesus are still unwilling to forgive certain people in your life. You're following Jesus the way you want to, on your terms. That means you're just taking a stand against God. Right? That's like saying that you love Jesus, but you don't love your spouse. And I know your spouse is messed up. I know they are. But you know what? You knew who you were marrying when you said yes. There's no surprise about your spouse. You knew who that person was. And so you got to work at that. And you got to work at loving that person because you decided to marry that person and you have to love them. That's like saying that you believe in Jesus and in your singleness, you continue to have casual sex. 
You're standing against God when you do that. That's like saying you believe in Jesus and yet you cheat to get ahead of work. You haven't given everything to Jesus Christ. You see, what Jesus wants is he wants a disciple. And a disciple is really somebody who has peace with God because they follow Jesus based upon his gracious terms. They follow God based upon God's way, not their way. That's a disciple of God. And that's what God wants you to do. And so people that can do that are ones who are willing to give God everything. Everything. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to give God everything? It doesn't mean that God wants you to give away everything. I think like when you read passages like this, you're thinking, all right, what do I need to give now? Like, all right, maybe I need to give my car. And like, I know this one pastor, he had just a Toyota FJ. And like he heard a pastor say, you got to give up everything. And you know what he did? He ended up selling that car and he got like a 1980 like Buick. You know, sometimes we read these pa passages and we think that God just wants to give you, that God wants you to give up everything. That's really not it. You know what God wants? Access to every area of your life. That's what God wants. That's giving God everything. When you give him access to all that you are. Part of discipleship is learning from God what he desires in those areas. Because you're never going to know at the start of everything involved what it means to follow Jesus. You're not going to know what everything is. It's a journey, isn't it? And many of you know that. And as you journey with God, as you get older and as you get more mature, then God's going to encourage you to give up other things and to work on some things in your life. Giving everything up to God is simply giving God access to all that you are. That's all it is. Will you give God access to all that you are? You've got to be willing to engage with God regularly if you want to give him access to all that you are. You really do. And how do we do that? I mean, it's basic, I believe. Prayer has to be a normal part of your rhythm, and there's many different ways to pray. There is, right? I like to journal when I pray. Some of you don't like to do that. That's cool. But can I just encourage you not to just read a list or go by a list and just kind of say, God bless me, and just pray for certain things. I mean, you can definitely pray for things. That's not a bad thing. But really, when you pray to God, pray what's in your heart. Pray what you're feeling towards him, towards other people in your life. Be honest and real. Pray honestly and transparently with them. Key. Meditating on the Bible, that is key. If you're not going to be a student of the word and learn, you're not going to be able to grow and be a disciple of Jesus. Because when you read the Bible, the great thing is the disciples, all of them from Old Testament to New Testament, they were just a motley crew of men that made mistakes all the time. That should encourage you. Because in our discipleship, we're not going to be perfect. And then the last thing is Christian community. You got to pray, read the Bible, meditate in the Bible, and you got to have Christian community. And there's only one thing that will determine whether you're living in Christian community or not today. You know what that one thing is? Confession of your sins. If you're not confessing your sins to someone physically, you don't have community in your life. Because you're not giving God access to those areas in your life. Expose those sins. That's the access that God wants from your life. He wants those dark areas that you don't want to share because there's some shame involved in that. But if you give God those, those areas, he'll breathe, in, he'll breathe on those things and he'll redeem it in your life. Amen? Come on. You guys know this. We talk about this all the time. But confess your sins. Start it today. Start getting into that place of doing that. And something beautiful will happen as you do. All right? So 
Giving God everything is you giving God access to all that you are. It's not about you giving away everything. It's just you giving God access to all that you are. The very last thing, in order for us to make Jesus our greatest priority, is when we accept that we are a work in progress. It's when we accept that we are a work in progress. This is a great reminder because when you hear about counting the cost, when you hear about giving God everything, it's daunting. And listen, you're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way, but that's okay because the disciples did. Let them encourage you. Because they, I mean, they lived with Jesus face to face for three years. I mean, I think if we did that, we, I hope we would have behaved better than them. They abandoned him at the cross when he needed them. They never believed he was the Messiah, even though they uttered those words. Peter said, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, whoa, Peter, I'm going to build the church with you. On this rock, I will establish my kingdom with you. And then when he gets crucified, they're all hiding. They're all afraid. And then when he resurrects, he goes and finds them because he knows that they're a work in progress. Why are they hiding? Because they're afraid that they're going to get killed by the Jewish leaders. And he appears before them because Jesus knows that they're a work in progress. But if he continues to work in them, that they're going to do something significant for him. And they, they did. They created the greatest movement this world has ever known. Christianity. You and I are a work in progress. And so we have to accept the truth that he is. And he's never done with you. That's the greatest news today. That if you choose to take the step of being his disciple and counting the cost and your willingness to give God everything by giving him access to your life, he's never done with you. He will always work in your life. And that's such good news. Now, renovation or God working in your life in that way is never an easy process. We just recently renovated our bathroom upstairs in the top floor. We have two bathrooms in our house. But for the past 10 years as we lived in this home, we owned, five of us shared one bathroom because the top one was nasty. All right, it was really old, rugged. Do we have a picture of my old bathroom? All right, my kids don't like going in there. Like those are like 1980 tiles, all right? So they don't like it, it's just dirty and stuff. And so we hired some contractors, they came in, they gutted the whole place out, it was disgusting. Our house was full of dust for a month. They said it'll take them six days to renovate. It took them a month. <laughs> the house was dusty, my dog had dust all over him. It was just horrible. I hated it. I just hated going up there and looking at it. It was just disgusting. But then what happens after they renovate it after the month? This is what our bathroom looks like now. It's beautiful, right? It's like, what, is those, what are those home improvement shows? I mean, it really is. Fixer-upper right there. But it's beautiful, and that's who you can be. You see, when God starts working on you, it's never easy. It's not very beautiful. It can look pretty ugly. But you know what? At the end, you're going to look like that. Not like a toilet, but you're going to look beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. <laughs> Maybe that was a bad, bad, bad metaphor, analogy. But you're going to look beautiful. You want to know why? Because he's never done with you. He's going to work on you. You're a work in progress. So listen, you will fail. I failed many times as a disciple. But get back up. Stop making this so about you and your performance because it's not about, discipleship is not about performance. It's about you loving a God that loved you so much that he's willing to forgive you because his son died for you on the cross and resurrected from the dead. And because you're so in awe of that mercy, you're willing to give all yourself to him. And when you fall down and some of you fall down hard, you just get back up because you know his mercy is there for you. 
And you stop beating yourself over the head because you failed or you think you failed God and you failed other people and you cut yourself some slack and you know you're a work in progress and one day as God continues to do his renovation on you, that you're not going to make those failures again, mistakes again. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I think one of the best examples of a disciple is my mom. And uh, I just, like this week, I just, she just brought so much joy to me because she's just an interesting little lady. She really is. My mother has gone through so much in her life that she shouldn't be where she's at today when I look at how happy she is and how full of joy she is in life. My mother, she was born in 1945 in South Korea. Korean War started in 1950. So South Korea, that Korea was just an awful place to be living during that time. Tremendous tension in that country. My mom didn't know her mom. She died when she was two. Had no recollection of her. When she was eight, her father died. He died in a motorcycle accident. Fell off a bridge. And as a result of it, she was this orphan little girl at the age of eight. And so her grandparents took care of her. And when she was about the age of 11, both of them grew ill, so they couldn't take care of her anymore. And so she had to quit school. And the schools that they went to back in those days were like in a little church. It wasn't like the schools that our kids go to. But she had to drop out of school at the age of 11, and she still holds on to that shame even to this day. And she had to work at a button factory full-time. Could you imagine being 11 years old, and you have to work a full-time job to feed your grandparents so that they don't die? That's what she had to do. So at the age of 11, she did that. And she worked and worked and worked so that she could provide for her grandparents. And then she vowed as she got older to never, ever marry a Korean guy. Because in the Korean culture, when you get married, you have to leave your family and go to the man's family. And she said, I can't leave my grandfather because if I leave him, he'll die. So she said, oh, I'm just going to be single for the rest of my life. And then one of her friends in the neighborhood introduced her to my father. And my father was from North Korea. And uh, didn't have any family. And so my father said this. He said, I promise I'll take care of your grandfather to the day he dies. And so my mom said, I'll marry you then. Because he proposed. My mom didn't marry him because she loved him. She married him because he promised to take good care of her grandfather. And he did. But then he passed away. And she realized that she married a man she didn't really love. And she didn't know that this man would eventually be physically abusive towards her. And she didn't fully know that because when we were living in Korea, my father worked in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. He fixed watches for the American GIs. Made a lot of money doing that. Was able to send money to my mom. So they really lived separately for a few years. And then when he came back, he, moved to, he found a way to get us to America. And as we went to America, that's when my mother knew the kind of man she married. And it was difficult my father would get drunk, come home, and would beat us and beat my mom. And after he's done, he would beat us. It was overwhelming for her. And the day that she decided to leave us, she told me, and I only knew this a few years ago, because I knew that she was going to leave us many times, but I didn't know what the reason was, was when my father had publicly beat her up in front of her friends. It's one thing to get beat up privately in your own home. Another thing, when you're being publicly beaten in front of your own friends. And she said that night she packed her bag and she was going to leave. And as she was walking out and getting ready to leave, she said she couldn't because she knew what the pain was of growing up without a mom. And she knew how painful that was, and she wasn't going to do that to her, her children. And so she decided to go back and say, I'm just going to live with this man. And in that time, I mean, she should have left him, she should have divorced him, all of that. But she didn't, and in her pain, she found God. And she leaned on this God to help her through this. 
And then my father found God because she prayed for that. And then my father stopped hitting her physically, but yet there was this deep emotional abuse that happened from time to time, not as much. And they learned to live together in that way. But my mom should be this messed up old woman at night. She's 72 years old. She should be angry all the time. Like really, if you look at her life and how she lived it, honestly, she should be this broken person. And she's broken, don't get me wrong. But she should have very little joy in life. And this week, I pulled into my driveway at 5 o'clock, and we live next to a ginkgo tree. None of you know what that is. <laughs> ginkgo beans or nuts, it smells like poop. But Korean people love it because, you know, ginkgo is a superfood. It increases blood circulation to the brain, and it cures, like, dementia and Alzheimer's. It's really healthy for you. And it just falls down by my house for free. And so my mom, like a Korean girl, she's there early in the morning. She's picking them all up, especially if there's a windy day. And she's bringing this load in a shopping bag. And she's walking to my house. And I pull in at five, like 5, 5.30. And I see her with this. And she's just laughing at the top of her lungs because she knows I hate it when she grabs this thing because it stinks <laughs> up the house. I don't let her in the house. She's outside, like, peeling them. But she, when, she comes home to, when she comes to my house to wash her hands, the house is stinking up. She stinks up the place. But she, and I take some pictures of her. Look how happy she is. She's so happy. She's just laughing. And I just said, that is a disciple. That is somebody who is a work in progress. She shouldn't be this happy with what she's endured in life. She should be so angry, blaming God for every misfortune, making my life miserable, my sister's life miserable, my wife's life miserable. And she does make it miserable once in a while, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but that's her most of the time. And I just looked at her and I said, you know what, i got to respect you so much more because I don't enough because you're, what you've been through and where you have gone and you still get up at 3 o'clock every morning and you kneel before God and you pray to him every single day for hours. She sits down and reads the scripture with her grade school education and it's very hard for her. What takes your parents five minutes to read will take her over an hour to read. But she works at it because she wants to learn the word of God. She wants to... Know him more. She's a work in progress. She's counted the cost. She's given God all access of her life to God. And even though she fails at it, she gets right back up. Where are you in your faith today? I don't know where you are. But I do know this. If you choose to be a disciple, if you choose to rise up and count the cost and follow him, if you choose to give everything to him, all access of your life to him today and embrace that you're a work in progress as you do that, then you can experience joy in the midst of the sorrows that you're going through today. You can experience hope in the midst of hopelessness that you're experiencing. And you can experience love even though you have so much pain in your life today. That's the promise of God today. Choose to be a disciple. Let's pray.